You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 91. This week we've brought on John Jenkins. John's the science lead for the Science Processing Operations Center, and that's where the raw data from NASA's newly launched Planet Hunter TESS goes to be cleaned up for science. And in case you forgot, TESS, or the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, just recently launched back in April. From pixels to planets, that's the catchphrase that we've been running on. And John's had a long history at Ames working on finding planets in other solar systems, even when this topic was just fringe science. He's definitely done his part to bring us into the golden age of exoplanets. So without further ado, let's jump right into our chat with John Jenkins. about yourself we always start the podcast off in the same way so like how did you get to nasa how did you end up in the bay area in silicon valley tell us about you oh okay well i i was a graduate student at georgia tech and i was uh, a radio scientist in electrical engineering who was studying the atmosphere of venus using pioneer venus orbiter mm-hmm. at the time back in the in the late 80s early 90s and I graduated and needed something to do. And so I came to Ames with a Pioneer Venus Guest Investigator Program grant okay. um, that allowed me to continue my work on, on Venus. And uh, that's how I met Bill Berkey, the PI for uh, Kepler. And that is that he was studying lightning in the atmosphere of Venus. And he's not shy of controversy, right? Uh, lightning in Venus was actually controversial at the time. Um, but he was just such an enthusiastic uh, person and a, a great scientist. So um, after a few years, I got involved with a group of international astronomers who wanted to mm-hmm. find exoplanets. And the exoplanets they wanted to find... Wasn't that kind of, I don't know, like controversial? But I remember yeah. reading that like it, there was a lot of false positives. or It wasn't a guaranteed thing that there was exoplanets. No, not at all. In fact, when I was a graduate student going to meetings, professional meetings, then every once in a while there would be a claim that somebody had found an exoplanet and it would get retracted. So there was a a, a large amount of concern about the fact that if we were going to do a mission like Kepler, that we had to be very certain that the discoveries Mm -hmm. we made were real planets. We did not want to get any egg on our faces and have to retract a claim. So... That was that was very important. What year? What year was this? When did you start working on the exoplanet work? Uh, circa 1994. So this was before the first exoplanet around a normal star was discovered, 51 Peg B. That didn't happen until 1995. But a group of astronomers, one of them, Lawrence Doyle, who was here, who also worked mm-hmm. for SETI Institute at the time, uh, wanted to look at uh, for circumbinary exoplanets for planets orbiting. Yeah, I was going to say circumbinary stars. Yeah, (laughs) circumbinary. So this is when you have a double star system. Uh, As the Star Wars reference. That's right. Tatooine. Tatooine. That's right. That's right. We were looking for Tatooines, and we had picked this uh, one star system that was the smallest known set of stars in an eclipsing binary. So they were eclipsing each other. Uh, The orbits were nearly edge on from our point of view, which meant that if there were planets there, they would almost be guaranteed to be crossing in front of the stars as they orbited. Okay. Because the stars were really small, about a quarter of the size and mass of the sun, uh, that meant that we had a really good chance of finding planets as small as, say, twice Earth. So uh, help me out on this one, because I'm like, like if you have two stars that are like, like uh, they're binary, right. are, are you thinking like they're so close that they're almost like 
the touching and collapsing, or it's like they're circling each other, but then they also have planets that are circling them, or the, that's or, right. Or are they circulating both planets, or how does right? So this is a very close eclipsing binary system, but they're not contact binary, so they're not okay. touching each other because the stars are small enough. But the orbital period is 1.26 days, so it is really short. Mm -hmm. uh, and the neat thing about this is that because they're smaller and cooler than the sun, if you put Earth in the system and said, at what orbital period would we have the same amount of flux or radiation from this system, from the stars? Like, would we be happy, right? Could we grow plants? Would liquid water mm -hmm. be on the surface? We would be in a 17-day period orbit. So our year would only be 17 days for us to be as warm as we are orbiting the sun in but a 365-day period But I'm orbit. thinking, but if you're like orbiting a star that is like doing a do-si-do -si -do with another star, uh -huh. I'm wondering like, are you going to slingshot into that star? Are you going to get too close <laughs> to that other one? You're going to have a bad time? Or am I just like completely nuts and crazy on this? Right. Well, um, no. It turns out that if you are closer than about five times the distance... Uh, five times the distance between the stars, then um, bad things can happen. So, but if you're outside of that range, so for this particular star system, once you're outside of five times 1.26 days for the orbital period, then you were okay. So we could have habitable zone planets there now. Now, oh, wow. at but this is before this is before a single planet had been found. That's right. So I, I want to just right. take you back for a second because this was <laughs> this was crazy. This was crazy town back then on exoplanets. There was nobody. There was very few people working on exoplanets. And That's did right. you so did you feel like you were on the fringe of science back then? And you know, what was it like working on exoplanets <laughs> when when we hadn't even found a single one? Well, you know, um, at the time, almost nobody thought it could be done. In fact, uh, there was a lot of skepticism, even though we were looking at a very small star system, and it was quite favorable because the stars are small enough so that we could hope to reach the precision from the ground to be able to detect planets as small as, say, twice Earth size from the ground. We got lots of observations over six years, but we never got any funding from NASA or NSF. And some of the reasons we got back in the debriefs were planets don't form around M stars. Planets hmm. don't form around binary systems. And guess what? The people who had predicted that that was the case, because nobody knew at the time, were wrong. So Kepler-16b was discovered in 2011 and uh, was the first case where we just discovered a Saturn-sized planet orbiting a pair of stars. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, it turns out that, that we should not have expected to find planets around CMDRAC because it's a close binary system. So when we find planets mm -hmm. in circumbinary orbits about binary star systems, they are much more widely spaced, it turns out. How did you pivot from from working on this binary star system and trying to find you know this planet a planet from the ground to mm -hmm. the idea of uh, you know we're going to go off and put a telescope into space and see if we can see it there like how did that idea come to to right to well you guys Bill Berkey was working on this all the time and so I heard him give a lecture here at Ames about Kepler it was like wow I'd love to work on that mission that would be so exciting this is this is truly you know, level zero science. It's not like working on Venus, which was really exciting to me at the time, but that was, in essence, learning more about Venus, about something we already knew a lot about. Mm -hmm. And here was a question we'd, be, we'd been pondering for thousands of years as, as humans. Are we alone? Are there other planets out there? When you look up into the night sky, and I know I did this as a child, lying on the grass out in the summertime, looking up, wondering, are there planets orbiting those stars? And are there beings like me looking up into their night sky yeah, in my really. direction, right? Mm -hmm. uh, wondering the same thing. So 
At the time when I was in grad school and in the early 90s, almost nobody believed it could be done because the technology was not ready for it to happen. And there were a lot of, there was a series of key technical challenges that needed to be overcome for the community to recognize that this was a credible thing and that we should be spending uh, the funds to do this because it's, it's, it's a real investment by NASA to fly a Discovery class mission like Kepler. And, well, and didn't, as I understand, like Bill Baruki, like he had pitched this a handful of times. There was like, hey, let's do this. And they're like, no, go back, get more info or modify it slightly. It's like, that's right. It's not like it was just thrown out there once and it's like, oh, this is genius. It was like trial and error, editing, getting back that's to right. the drawing board, back and forth. And that seems to be just, that's how things function. That's like kind of how the system works. That's right. So today we think of Kepler as a fail complete of, of course, it's successful. Of course, we've detected 2,600 planets. Back then, almost nobody believed it could be done. And so, uh, in fact, I joined the team right after we'd gotten uh, rejected by the first discovery um, selection process in 1994. So I joined the team in 1995, just shortly before I got married. Mm -hmm. And when Kepler was still called freeze-up, frequency of earth size interplanets, and the key questions that time were, can we operate CCD sensors? So these are the yeah. uh, image sensors in your in your cell phones, so they're in your digital cameras. Can we operate these devices and reach a level of precision of 10 parts per million in six hours? That's the precision we needed to achieve in order to be able to find Earth-sized planets transiting or crossing in front of sun-sized stars. And you were working on this before you know, digital cameras had, had not even really come out yet. This was not part of the consumer market, even, it, right? It was not it was certainly not widespread <laughs> at the time. And in fact, what we needed is we needed a breakthrough in the technology. We needed backside illuminated CCDs to become commercially available. At the time, there were it was a research project. We had some mm-hmm. research grades, backside uh, CCDs on loan from JPL. We put these in the lab. We tested them. We demonstrated that we could reach this exquisite level of precision necessary to do the job. Um, but there were a whole series of questions like stellar variability. Okay. Um, so what about star spots? Well, if you look at the sun, it has sunspots and, mm-hmm. and they cross the face of the sun every, uh, it takes about a couple weeks for them to do so. And if you measure the brightness of the sun over that time period, the signatures of the spots in terms of the amount of light yeah. they block is five times deeper than that that you would get from an Earth-sized planet. Oh, so you could end up mistaking a star spot for a planet. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So what's the first big major analytical question he had for me besides doing this lab work demonstrating that CCs could reach this level of precision was, was what about star spots, John? I want you to work with the SOHO data on the sun to demonstrate whether or not we can actually make this happen. And it was a it was a it was a challenging task. It required sophisticated signal processing techniques. Fortunately, I mean this is what what's great about coming to NASA is that you can bring a wide skill set yeah. uh, with you. So I had a background in, in digital signal processing and so I took some of those tools uh, and brought them to bear on this problem and, and developed an algorithm, uh, a computer software program that allows us to analyze uh, the signals from stars like the sun to characterize the observation noise from star spots so that we can selectively ignore them and focus on the transits. And we were talking about music earlier. Um, it turns out that the algorithm is very <laughs> much like a, like a soundboard or like a graphic equalizer on a stereo. Okay. So imagine, if you will, um, that the sun has these star spots and that those are the bases, right? 
and then you've got contrabasses that might be a little bit deeper, and then you've got the, uh, your baritones and your altos and your sopranos. Well, when a planet crosses the face of a star in an orbit like Earth, it takes only 10 hours on average for it to cross the face of the star. But when you're talking about the spots, it takes them a couple weeks. So it's kind of like listening for the piccolos. Oh, okay. So if you're out on the on the marching band field and you're listening to Star Spangled Banner, you have no problem whatsoever listening to the piccolos playing their solo during mm-hmm. the interlude, no matter how loud those tubas are playing or the trombones are are playing. You so pick it out. so yeah. So but the way that we do it with software is that we analyze the power in the noise as a function of a frequency or pitch, and that allows us to then uh, fold in and take account of the details of, of the noise process to formulate an optimal detector so so that we can find these very small planets. Um, I think it's so fascinating that you really, like, that the data comes down and it's got, I mean, it's just raw data and there's there's anything and everything in there. There's there's instrumentation glitches, there's star spots, there's, there's a- other astrophysical noise in that data, and you're looking for something very specific out of that, right? And, you know, I mean, and that's what, you know, your work with the, the data processing really is, the science data processing pipeline, right? Could right. you say a little bit about what that pipeline is and why that's so important to what we get out the other end, which is the usable data that scientists can go out and, and discover planets? Right. So so you're absolutely correct that, that it's, it's a very challenging task. And what we have to do is to go from what we say pixels to planets. <laughs> and nice. that is that we're taking down this stream of, of image data. So imagine, if you will, we've got Kepler up there. It's taking images of the stars every half hour. We can't afford to store all the data on board, so what we do is we cut out the images of the stars that we want to find planets around. It's kind of like taking your high school yearbook, cutting out the pictures of your friends, and <laughs> pasting them on a new page and throwing the rest of the book away. But then you get the data down, and there are artifacts uh, due to the instrumentation that you have to remove, and you have to put the, the digital numbers, because it's just a stream of numbers, onto a into physical units so you can properly mm-hmm. interpret them. And essentially, you're looking at a set of pixels with an image of a star moving around slightly on it, and you add up the pixel values, the numbers, to estimate the brightness of the star. And you have to do things like you have to identify and remove cosmic rays, because those happen. Yeah. And then when you look at your what we call light curves, the measurements of brightness of the stars over time, you have instrumental effects. So uh, for Kepler, one of the biggest instrumental effect is the fact that the telescope changes its shape in response to the changing thermal state or the temperature as you know over the spacecraft and the instrument. And it turns out that there was a uh, heater on the reaction wheel assembly that kept the reaction wheels nice and happy. But mm-hmm. if it turned on, then it would swing its temperature by five degrees Celsius, and that would cause the shape of the telescope to change by 0.1 micron, so there, it would change oh, the wow. distance between the 1.4 meter primary mirror and the focal plane that was 1.4 meters away. So you could see a 0.1, a tenth of a micrometer change in the distance between those, and you could easily see the signature of this kind of triangle or triangle yeah. wave imposed by this heater in the pixel data. So I mean, it's crazy, uh, crazy sensitive. So uh, a friend of mine said, well, you know, once you invent an instrument that is an order of magnitude better than anything in its class, you've invented the world's best thermometer at the same time. <laughs> and so that's certainly true yeah. with Kepler. So the next, to answer your question, the next uh, stage of the processing is to identify these instrumental signatures and remove them. And, and we were surprised. This was a big surprise on orbit. We thought, based on 
pre-flight uh, testing and, and models that uh, we would be mainly dealing with pointing errors. Like, so if the pointing got a little bit worse, get a little bit better, that would modulate or change the brightness measurement. But it turned out that we'd underestimated and underappreciated how important the thermal state of the telescope yeah. was and, and how the focus would change over time. Wow. Uh, so, wow. so we had to go back to square one and come up with a, with and a new methodology. Yeah, basically. come up with a completely new methodology for how to deal with with that situation. And the thing that I find fascinating because this is like, there's so. I mean, going back to the pipeline, there's so much information packed in there. And right now, there's people who are writing papers, they've published in journals and stuff about the information that they found there, but. What about there's so much information that's still hiding in there? And so I'm thinking long after the telescope is retired, long after it's everybody's, you know, we're no longer operating the telescope, there's still going to be science papers and analyses and stuff coming long after we've all like packed up and moved along. Oh, that's absolutely right. And in fact, um, people may be able to come up with better algorithms, better software for identifying or removing these instrumental yeah. signatures. Uh, after we do that, then w the goal is to have. The brightness changes over time, and each star only represent what's happening on that star. And we get a lot of information from that, not just about transiting planets, but about the star itself. So we talked about star spots before. So if you, you can actually see the signatures of the star spots, measure how long it takes for them to go around the star, and, and get an estimate for what the rotation period of the star is. And that actually, together with the temperature of the star can give you an estimate for the age of the star. Oh. So that's telling you more about the system. Uh, it's also true that one of the most fascinating things that we did with Kepler was to measure acoustic oscillations in a large number of these stars. And it's they're just like big bells. And mm. they ring. And they ring at a set of frequencies that is, is connected. Is and what does that mean exactly? What, what does it mean for a star to ring? Well, um, you is have star like quakes. the movement so, of the plasma or something? Or yeah, like, yeah. So, okay. so it's this big ball of, of fluid, of, of gas, and it's kind of like, think about a big bowl of jello without the bowl. Okay. And now <laughs> if you perturb it in any way, then it's going to jiggle, yeah. right? It's going to jiggle and communicate yeah. that jiggle across it, and that might bounce back, and so you might set up kind of like a sort of like a coherent jiggling that, that has a periodicity to it. And so the same thing happens with a star. If you have a disturbance on the surface, which can happen because you have convection, so that's and you can have turbulence, then you will have acoustic waves, sound waves, travel down through the plasma. They will get ref refracted, or they will bend back up to the surface at another point. Mm -hmm. They will bounce off the surface, go down, and it, it's kind of like a, a daisy chain where if they come back to the same point they started, they'll keep on going. But you have all kinds of things going on, so you set up lots of these modes. And so stars ring in different ways, they oscillate in different ways, but you can take the frequencies of the oscillations that you measure and infer the mass and the size of the star to within a couple percent. And that's amazing, because these yeah. stars are thousands of light years away. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we can't measure the disk. It's not like you're measuring the disk of the star. We can't see that. We can't resolve it. Yeah. yeah. Piggybacking on, on the pipeline thing, I'm just curious because, like, you, you say pipeline and automatically I'm thinking of like an oil pipeline, something. You're taking something from one place to another. Right. Maybe kind of walk through that for folks who may not be aware. I'm uh -huh. guessing it's, it's telescope down to you guys on the ground. Then that's like, like process it. I mean, at that point, are you piping it out to the scientific community? Like, right, yeah. right, right. I'm so, just guessing here. So for Kepler, Kepler would turn after a month of collecting data, and it would send down the image data through the deep space network to the ground, and then it would be piped through the Ethernet to 
the Data Management Center at Space Telescope Science Institute, they would reformat it into files that they would then send to us. And these files would basically contain the image data as a function of time. So you'd have one file per half hour uh, for each and every star that you were observing. So we would put all those files on a, on a server, and then we would uh, our, we have a pipeline infrastructure that's a control system that basically controls all of this. So when the files arrived, we, part of the system would ingest the data into our database, and then it would fire off the, the first stage of the processing, which is to do these image level calibrations that we talked about. So for example, one of them is the fact that we don't have a shutter on Kepler. And, but it takes 0.5 seconds to read the data out. So that means that the uncalibrated images have these vertical smear trails from the fact that, that as you clock the charge, the image down the CCD in each row, it picks up a little bit light from the stars that are under it. Hmm. And so that's one of the things that we, I, that we make special measurements to correct out. So, but we do that processing on the supercomputer now. Now, in the early days of Kepler, we didn't need the supercomputer because we could keep up with the data. But in the out years, we moved everything to supercomputers. So instead of processing the data on, say, 400 computer cores that we had available, uh, we could process it on 10,000 computer cores available at the supercomputer. This allowed us to keep up with the data, but also it allowed us to go back and reprocess the data mm. as we learned about the sky as we learned about our instrument and we could evolve our algorithms and have better science products. I mean, you essentially started from scratch with this, right? I mean, there was no pipeline to start with. You you put this all together, right? You and your team? We had some heritage. So yes, mm-hmm. um, we had uh, the data processing software that we developed for these laboratory-based experiments. So we had some ideas of how what we had to do with the data. And then one of the things that we did uh, before we were finally selected in in the in the fifth discovery proposal uh, process that that Bill competed in, was that we built a um, camera that we put up on Lick, Mount Hamilton on at Lick mm. Observatory, and we used that to observe a seven degree by seven degree swath of the sky, and we called it the Vulcan camera. And so I developed the pipeline for that with with a small handful of people, and so we had that software as a basis to start Kepler, but Kepler was so much more data. Instead of observing 10,000 stars, we were observing 150,000 stars. We really needed- a brand new instrument and- That's right. right. We needed professional software engineers to come and help us scale up the system so that we could actually uh, do it with a lot of confidence and a a lot that that would run every time and that you didn't have to have somebody go in there and change things or- How important is having a pipeline like this? I mean, I know- you know, some some members of the scientific community develop their own pipelines, right? Right. right. Um, so, what's the what's the value added by having uh, our own in-house pipeline? Well, uh, the the main advantage for the science community is that mm-hmm. we're set up to process and deliver the data on a regular regular basis, and we're also set up and funded to document uh, what we do to the data, to document the characteristics of the of the data. And so, and it's all the, publicly available. It's right? all publicly available. Yeah. So this is the pipeline, right, John? That's that's going to be used for tests. I mean, in a reworked version of it, right? Yes. Yeah, so we took the Kepler pipeline and we ported it um, and reformulated it for the test mission. And the biggest challenge there is that TESS is collecting 13 times as much image data wow. as we wow. did for for Kepler. And so, you know, Kepler basically opened the door mm-hmm. for 
the test mission and for other exoplanetary missions. JWST is like everybody's everybody loves exoplanets now. That's right. <laughs> falling over each other. That's right. <laughs> 25 years ago, it would have been hard to imagine all of the excitement and all yeah. of the interest and all of the work that's going into these future missions. So we've got TESS launching. TESS is going to do an all-sky survey. Yes, we get to use our pipeline, but we've souped it up. We've found some ways to simplify it. Uh, we process a month worth of data. It takes us uh, somewhere uh, around a week or so to process a month worth of data. And, and you've been able to do that with TESS because of advances in computing power, right? I mean, the, the sheer right. amount of data coming from TESS yeah. is, is just is just enormous, right? That's right. The supercomputer keeps on getting more super. <laughs> uh, our data storage devices uh, get faster and, and bigger. The Kepler spacecraft, for example, could only store about 10 gigabytes of data on board, and that represented 66 days of data collection. Mm -hmm. With TESS, uh, oh, we're yeah. able to, it's, modern it's technology. Got, modern technology. Know. It's got a the data storage is 185 gigabytes. So wow. So yeah, it, it's about 18 times more data storage on board, and then we can send all that data down. So of course we're going to collect a lot more data and send it down. How excited do you think the astronomy community is over all this data coming that's about to come down from TESS? I mean, this, is, this must be a um, great <laughs> deal of excitement. There is. They're yeah. terribly excited. So you know. I think one of the fortuitous things is that we've had Kepler, and then the best worst thing happened to Kepler, K2. So we yeah. lost our second reaction wheel in May of 2013 after four years of observing. Uh, a ball engineer named Doug Weimer came up with an idea of how we could continue to uh, yeah. point the spacecraft stably at a given point in space for a couple months at a time, and that became the K2 mission. So the community has then rallied around K2 because we can do a lot more different kinds of science on the fields of view that we can observe with K2. And so the K2 community now is starting to cut their teeth on synthetic science data sets that we produced uh, in the test project and that, that we here at Ames generated uh, via a high fidelity uh, science simulator that that we developed specifically for TESS that was modeled on the one, the one that we um, did for Kepler. And so that data is up there on mass now. It's called the N10-6 data set. And there was a, uh, a workshop that happened called the uh, TESS Ninja Workshop nice. in March. And they went to town on that data set. In fact, within a couple of days, the first paper appeared on AstroPH, right, in this, this science server about making light curves from the synthetic full-frame image data that we'd put out there. Oh. Now, are you um, feeling are you feeling ready for tests? I am ready. <laughs> I am ready. We, you know, we're not twiddling our thumbs. We're sort of tuning things up, but totally. we delivered uh, the functionality back in December, and so we've been participating in in simulations and and rehearsals. And we've been stress testing the system just to make sure everything's just right. You're like one of the first people who get to see the data, right? Which is pretty exciting. You, I mean, it same is. with Kepler, right? That's and you, right. You have like a great story about the first seeing the Kepler data, and and maybe you could rehash that and tell us a little bit about <laughs> your anticipation <laughs> nice. for tests. Sure. Okay. Well, yeah. You know, um, it took us seven years on Kepler to get selected for flight, and then it took another uh, eight years before we could build and, and launch it. So I had a little trepidation the first morning uh, that I arrived at work. I was the first one at work. We'd gotten the message <laughs> the night before that the first science-like data set had come down 10 days worth of observations on 53,000 stars. I wasn't quite ready to sit down at my workstation and look at it. I, my heart was thumping. My stomach was in my throat. Uh, so I decided to wash the coffee pot. Now, 
I don't know. We never washed the coffee pot, but, but I decided that day I had to wash the coffee pot. They gave me an extra five minutes to compose myself to sit down to face the music if it was bad. And uh, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, I pulled over the data. I started displaying and visualizing the light curves and the eclipsing binaries and and the giant transiting planets just kind of fell in our laps. And in fact, we were looking at stars that were variable stars. And my friend Doug Caldwell had the uh, encyclopedia of variable stars. It was a graphical encyclopedia. And I'd say, Doug, what kind of star is this? And he'd flip through this encyclopedia and say, I have no idea, John. And so that was one of the biggest Kepler discoveries was that we found that some of the variable stars actually are hybrids. We found gamma oh, dorata wow. stars. So that, you were seeing stuff almost immediately in the data. We were. Right, in fact, right one of those there. things was that there, was, uh, there were three previously discovered exoplanets that were in our field of view that were discovered before we launched. And of course, they were on our target list. One of those was Hat P7b. Now, this is a inflated Jupiter in a 2.2-day period orbit about its star. And we knew that when we looked at this light curve that we would see 1.6% drops in brightness every 2.2 days corresponding to the planet. What we didn't recognize at the time was that when you looked at the what the light curve did in between the transits, you saw it was bow-shaped. It would kind of like a like an upside down smile so the light increased in between the transits and reached its peak just in between and then there was a notch cut out at the very middle at the very top huh. and it turned out that when we read the discovery paper because we pulled it right down that day uh, it represented a really great candidate to look for and detect thermal emission from this planet because it's so hot it's so close to its star it's kind of like a burning ember it's glowing on the side that's facing the star and it's kind of like the phases of the moon when it transits it's in between us and the star but then its orbit carries it around the star so we see more and more of its sun-kissed face just like the moon going to full moon this went to full planet except then it went behind the star and the light from the planet winked out now the fascinating thing here was that the depth of the notch, which corresponded to how much light we lost because the planet was behind, you know, going behind the star. We're the other side of it. Yeah, was 100 parts per million. Whoa. Now, that's very special because that's the same size as you would expect for the transit of an Earth-sized planet going in front of a sun-sized star. So, whoa, that was, that was such a relief. I mean, man, we, we demonstrated that Kepler right out of the box had, had the sensitivity right. to allow us to find Earth-sized planets transiting or crossing in front of sun-sized stars. So you're going to be doing this with tests. I mean, you're going to be the first one to look at some of the test data and see what it shows us. Are you, what, what are you, how are you feeling about that moment? You going to clean the coffee pot again? I know, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, Everybody I, bring your coffee pots to John's office. That's right. I'm, I've, I've got the, it's the only I've got chance the, you got to get them cleaned. I've got the Brillo pads. I'm ready. Uh, so, so, you know, I think it's going to be a lot of fun, but... Um, Kepler was, there were some real nail biters right off the bat. We went into safe mode during launch. We had some safe modes during commissioning. Every once in a while, uh, Kepler got seasonal affectational disorder and decided around Christmas it it (laughs) was too lonely and it would shut down for a while. Um, And after a while, I got kind of inured. I got kind of used to the fact that every so often something it always comes back. Something might happen, but we always were able to resurrect it. Even when we lost the second reaction wheel, that was a real blow. We were all real glum for a while, but then it resurrected just like Phoenix from the ashes with something that, in my mind, is is in many ways almost as good as Kepler, um, in, in some ways better than Kepler. With Kepler, I just wish we'd had that extra two to four years because... 
if we'd had three reaction wheels, we could have done a four and a half year mm-hmm. K2 mission or longer just as well. Uh, with TESS, you know, it's going to have some surprises for us. And we yeah. haven't even talked about this, but we collect a full frame image with TESS every half hour. This oh, is, wow. you know, 15 times the sky area that we collected with, with Kepler. And is one twenty-sixth of the sky. I think one twenty-sixth of the sky. Crazy. So that after we we're going to change our field of view every month, and after twelve months, thirteen pointings, we're going to be able to uh, map the entire southern hemisphere. Then we're turning the spacecraft upside down, and we're going to observe the northern hemisphere. But what's so fascinating to me with Kepler is going to be fifteen times more amazing for TESS, and that is that with Kepler we discovered things and objects and systems we had no idea were there. We found a small submercury-sized disintegrating planet. Nobody thought we'd find something yeah. like that. We found signatures of exocomets. We found uh, Tabby's star. We found circumbinary planets. We found heartbeat stars. There were so many things that we found with Kepler that we had no idea were out there to find. Think of what it's going to be like to have uh, a movie of the sky of the full sky after two years. That's yeah. going to be so totally amazing. Yeah. I can't wait for all the science that comes out of that, that we have no idea what it is, but it's going to be great. So for folks who are listening, if you have any questions or comments, we are at NASA Ames. We are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Um, also, we always say, like, we're a NASA podcast, but we're not the only NASA podcast. Uh, you can always check out our friends over at Houston. We have a podcast over in Texas. Um, there's also Gravity Assist over in D.C. Um, and also uh, this week at NASA. But for music fans, there's also Third Rock Radio. Best way to grab all this stuff is to hop on over to the NASA app, um, or we even have a omnibus RSS feed called NASAcast, where it takes all of the NASA podcasts and puts them all into one place. But Allison, thanks for tag teaming this. Yeah, my (laughs) pleasure. John, thank you so much for coming over. This has been fascinating. Well, thank you, man. Thank you, Allison. It's my pleasure. And stay tuned. Stay tuned.